You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Patricia Cornwell. This program originally aired in 2013. I am very happy. I am here in this beautiful music hall. I'm listening to fantastic music. Live free or die, no state tax. I'm going to move. Thank you so much for having me tonight. This is just loads of fun. And I'm not going to say a whole lot right now because what I want you to do is I want you to think of that one question that you've just been dying to ask me for all these years. Or if you don't want to ask me, you can ask Scarpetta and I will see if I can tune her in and and let you know what she might say. She can be kind of stubborn sometimes. I do want to say one thing about our feisty character now that she's here in her 21st novel, debuting uh, yet again in another, another year. Um, one thing that's been really fun for me is that I find her more interesting every time I sit down to write a book. And partly that's because the world that she inhabits, which is the same one we do, is ever-changing. And when I think of what the technology is today and the types of crimes that we deal with today, as opposed to what I saw in the, in the mid and late 80s and early 90s when I was getting started in all this, it's it's not even the same planet, and I'm sure most of you here would agree with that. And so there's always something new that she has to deal with. And as she gets older and I get older, one of my favorite things to do is to explore, how does it feel? How does it feel to be you, Scarpetta? What is your perspective? And what would you have to say about this type of crime and some of the things that we're seeing on the television news and reading in the newspapers? What I like to imagine is if any one of us were sitting next to her at a dinner party, what would we like to ask her? We, I personally would want to know her opinion on a number of things, particularly some of the types of things um, that aren't so funny and entertaining that we see that happen all too often these days. So if you don't want to ask me a question, maybe you'll want to ask her one, and let's have a really great time tonight. Let's spend it together. Let's have some music, and I'll be back in a little bit with Virginia. Thank you. like to acknowledge that this is the only public stop, live stop, that Patricia Cornwell is making on this tour. So please, let's give it up for her. We're thrilled. Yeah, um, actually, not, not only just in America, but actually in the world, this is my only public Woo! stop. <laughs> so, thank you. Well, thank you. <laughs> Thank 
Well, we're just thrilled. And, and you just uh, spoke a little bit about how real news makes it into your books, into your novels. And I was thinking that we begin this novel with Kay Scarpetta has just returned from Sandy Hook, from Newton, Newtown, Connecticut. Something that happened not even a year ago. Um, yes. And I'm wondering, when you see these things on the news, do you start to think, how would my character see this? How would it generate for Kay and the others? Well, it's inevitable that that always is filtered through my mind about how Scarpetta w would see things and what she would say. Because as I mentioned a minute ago, she lives in the same world that all of us do. And for me to keep writing the same types of books I did 10 or 20 years ago when the world is different and the crimes are different would, would not make much sense. And it would actually not even be fair. So. The Sandy Hook thing is a really unusual situation um, in, in this particular work or any work because of the way it happened. Uh, ordinarily, I don't just infuse modern or real crimes in my books. And I'd already started Dust when I, almost a year ago in December, ironically, I happened to be in Washington, D.C. And I was having a, a visit with Senator Orrin Hatch. Um, this has nothing to do with politics, so don't anybody get upset. <laughs> You're starting already. <laughs> no, it's just that, you know, I've known him forever because of his, he used to be head of judiciary. We used to do, have some projects together that had to do with law enforcement. And we were having a big talk about some of the very problems that were about to happen, even as I was sitting in his office. We're talking about crime and violence and the trends and the problems with these shooting sprees in public places and these sorts of things. And I go walking out into his sitting room as I was leaving, and this was all over the flat screens on the wall. We didn't even know what had happened as I was sitting there. And all the way back to Boston, I was following the news of this unthinkable atrocity. And one of the things, a couple things went through my mind in addition to the obvious things that have gone through everybody's minds about this, I thought, first of all, I'm so frustrated that Scarpetta doesn't really exist and doesn't really have this headquarters in Massachusetts because she would be in the car right now heading to Newtown to help her colleagues. And frankly, I can't think of anyone better to deal with the families than our fine lady. And so, and then I thought, and what would this do to her? Because I have put her through about everything you can possibly imagine. Um, she's killed people, almost been killed. She I mean, the ladies wonder she still speaks to me. But, <laughs> but never has she been through something quite like this. Mm -hmm. And so I said, you know what? Let's do it. I'm going to give these people in Newtown the best I've got. I'm sending Scarpetta in. And so the dust opens. She's just been there. I don't show you that case, obviously. But she's been there, and she has, she's haunted by these impressions, and she's actually quite undone. Mm. We see her at the most vulnerable that you will ever see her in any of my books, where she, her reaction is to come down with the flu. I mean, she just gets sick, and she thinks it's just... You know, Marino says it's because she took a flu shot, and she tries to remind him that's really not the way it works. But she, she is at a very low point, and of course the phone rings at 3 or 4 in the morning, and there's a case that she has to respond to. You, did you want a short question, answer no, to my question? I want, I want a conversation. You know, I do think in 500-page increments. I warn you about that. But... but that, that, that terrible tragedy also set the tone for the rest of the book because she deals with a similar type of killer. Somebody who does some, some of what they're motivated by, the people today, these killers, is the attention. Mm -hmm. Benton and refers to it as a spectacle killing. That's what Benton Wesley, the, her FBI profiler husband, calls this type of killer. Um, and 
that is, I think, unfortunately, this is something that I never used to see in the early days. This is new. I mean, I remember with Columbine that one of my medical examiner friends said, this opens the gate, and when the more it opens, the more it will happen. And, I, and unfortunately, I think that's what we're seeing, and this is part of what my characters are addressing in this book. Well, uh, on that note, uh, the, the, she is rattled. She's unnerved. These scenes keep repeating in her head which is something we haven't seen, as you just acknowledged from Kay Scarpetta. And that leads to a question from the audience about how do you keep a recurring character fresh? Does she have to go through these kind of mutations? She has to go through them because in real life she would. Yeah. She would if she's a, an honorable person and true to her profession, which is a self-sacrificing profession. She serves the public. And frankly, I mean, she is the last doctor some people are going to ever see, and she knows the responsibility of that, not just for those people who can't speak anymore and tell their story, and she will get it out of them somehow, but also for those they leave behind, because justice is really for them. That is for, you know, the families and the loved ones, um, for anybody that's left in the aftermath, not just of violence, but of terrible loss. And I do think she's a gift because she helps us to look at things that are really hard. And in, even while doing so, at the end of the day, we feel we're better off from having been on that journey with her. What is it like for you, however, in the book, uh, in this book, she's commenting on how Benton Wesley pursues, when in, when in pursuit of a predator, is just singularly focused. That's all he can think about. And I wonder if, what it's like to live with you while you were going through a novel. Are you singularly focused? I, I think that if you were to auction me off, most people would say, forget it, you know? <laughs> and she's probably not real easy to live with. I am singularly focused, and fortunately, my partner is very patient and helpful because when I've always got something in my mind, even if I've finished a book, I'm already thinking about the next one. And, and I do research that it's, it's like range marks on leather, you know, when a cow backs up against the barbed wire and, and distressed leather is supposed to be pretty, but it hurts to get it. And every time I do some of the research I do, I get another range mark in my hide because I, I do real things and see real things, and many of them are very painful. Um, it's so, and, and that, that it's, I always say, you know, I created Scarpetta, but now she's created me because I'm not the same person from having to live her life. But I'm also able to do it with an authenticity and a passion because I care about the same things that she does. Well, you also create the criminals. You're, you're traveling into the killer's mind. And as Scarpetta goes through these procedures and autopsies, she always says, the body speaks to me. You know, the body's telling her something. So you, do you go into a dark place when you're creating a criminal as well as Scarpetta? Not, not, as, not as dark as you might think. I go into what the killer does and who it is enough so that we have the evidence and the wherewithal to catch this person. And, and then usually we catch them in a way that punishes them but good, because I don't like these people. And so I don't really care what they like to eat or what their mother was like, and I don't want to know their backstory. I just want them out of the way. A lot of people are asking about your research, by the way, um, because the, the procedures have changed so much since you first started writing these books, and it's been a long time since you've worked at the Chief Medical Examiner's Office. So how do you stay current? Well, I, you know, I still do research. For example, in Dust, uh, two of the real innovations you're going to see, and you may have seen them in a couple of my earlier books, more recent ones, I mean, 
is that the, the whole advent of using uh, imaging. Mm -hmm. um, the, the same pit. type of imaging, well, that too, but the same type of imaging we're using on living people, CT scans, even MRIs, for example, we're also using on the dead now. A lot of your more modern medical examiner facilities have these very high radiation CT scanners so they can get these amazing three-dimensional images of the body inside and out before they ever take a blade to it. So Scarpetta's doing that imaging. She's also doing I'll throw a big word out there. She's doing post-mortem angiography in this book where she's injecting dye into blood vessels because she has suspicion that the first victim she works on might have had an underlying problem that caused her to die before someone actually had a chance to kill her because there's something that's not adding up about what she's seeing. So we watch her do a procedure that generally has always only been done on living people who still have a circulation. So I find out these things from the real people who are doing them. I go visit places, I watch it, and I learn it so I can show it to you. And this is uh, one of the things that you've been a great pioneer in is pre presenting forensic work and forensic autopsies to um, to television viewers for now, CSI, NCIS, cold case unit, a lot of them have obviously taken the case Scarpetta character and changed her in some ways, which makes me think of, of two things. One is some law enforcement have this impression that everybody thinks that crimes can all be solved with forensics now. And the other part of that is, you know, do you feel at all like, hey, you know, I'm over here, I'm writing these novels. I know you've considered movies for Kay Scarpetta. Have you ever thought of a television series? Um, actually, I'm in the process of developing one right now that's a brand new character um, uh, named Greta Stone, who's a, a young woman police investigator with very special gifts and a very special background. And we're uh, right now in the midst of we're, we're developing the pilot for ABC. Wow. So we'll hope that the pilot really works and it launches it into a dramatic series because I think all of you will will love Greta. She's She has that precision and the ability to dissect a case like Scarpetta does, but she's not using a scalpel because she's not a forensic pathologist. She's more of the Sherlockian deductive, uh, those sorts of skill sets that she has. Um, as far as all the other shows, um, I'm just delighted that all these shows could be inspired by my hard work, and I'm lying because I'm not. Um, <laughs> When I first realized that the market was flooded with all these things, you know, I've been a good sport about it, but I thought, why, why didn't I think of this? <laughs> you know, what a dummy. I should have been trying to, to do that myself. But, but Scarp you know, we're still trying to get Scarpetta to the big mm. screen. I have a movie deal um, that's been a number of years in development. We're still in the, the dog days of trying to get the right script. But uh, Fox 2000 at the moment is hopeful that maybe by next fall we'll finally be in production for it. So you'll know more about it as I do, but we haven't given up on that. She's she's stubborn. I think she 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 goes and has lunch in Hollywood, and then we turn around, she's disappeared again. So, <laughs> well, I'm sure it was a good lunch. She's though. probably busy. You know, I don't know. <laughs> well, I a load of people are asking about the film, the possibility of a film, and I know that Angelina Jolie has been uh, attached to the idea of playing Scarpetta since 2009, acknowledged at least as recently as 2011. But I'm wondering, as many people are, 
who you envision as Kay Scarpetta. And people are asking, Marino, George Clooney, by the way, a note here, George Clooney is Benton. Everybody likes that idea uh, out Scarpetta there. Scarpetta likes that. <laughs> I, I think we could talk her into that, actually. <laughs> Any other who you have envisioned for characters or to play these characters? My vision for Scarpetta, sorry? Meredith Baxter Burney. Not bad. Good idea. My she's aged beautifully, like I imagine Scarpetta has. Yeah, well, she's kind of quit aging. I stopped that a while ago. <laughs> I said it's now really a shame because I can't ask her what she feels about hot flashes because she doesn't have them yet. So, and I, but I have to leave her in a certain airspace, or she'll be. I'll be writing of her retirement book, and I don't want to do that. So. But, you know, my image of whoever would play Scarpetta, and, and I know this will shock you, I do not have any one person in mind. Yeah. Um, it, it just needs to be somebody that when the movie opens, and wherever Scarpetta is, I mean, she might be cooking in her kitchen or getting in her car and going somewhere, who knows, or showing up at a courthouse, I want us to feel she just walked in, and we're looking at her. I mean, I want to sort of cry because it's going to be a very moving experience for me mm -hmm. unless it's done badly. Then I'll probably cry for another reason. <laughs> but I want to feel I'm looking at this lady because like the rest of you, I've never really seen her either. Um, I mean, people, I guess, assume that she's fully formed in my head. She's not. She's more of an impression. I know what she thinks. I know what she feels. I know what she's seeing when she's looking at something because I'm inside her head. But I don't really see her... I mean, I've always thought, wouldn't it be amazing to walk in a room and she's at the same cocktail party and she's over there on the sofa. And I would say, um, we haven't formally met, but you know, I'm, you know who? And she goes, who? Who? You know, I'm the one who writes all those books about you. What books? Because that's the thing. I know who she is. And what if she doesn't know who I am? I might hurt my feelings just yeah, a little bit. Yeah, that would be tough. <laughs> and now I'm really sounding like a crazy person. <laughs> but you know... The thing about the books is there's so much depth of personality. There are so many psychological undercurrents about relationships. I mean, we know these people on some level. We know what Lu how Lucy behaves. We know how Marino behaves. How does that come across in a film? It's got to be really well written and mm. well acted. And I think what people have to be prepared for is... You know, the, the whole beauty of writing is that the very act of reading makes you a creative person because you are creating the same way an author does. I mean, you're seeing what somebody looks like, you're hearing the sound of the voice, the rainstorm is the way, is really more going to be the way you remember one that was similar. So it becomes highly personalized when it goes through the filter of our own brains and our own imagination. So, which is very different from watching a movie where you're seeing something being acted out. So it's not possible that when one of these films is finally made, it's going to be exactly the way you've seen the Scarpetta world in your head all these years. Mm -hmm. And I always try to warn people and remind them when the day comes, try to look at it as, as something that you enjoy, but it doesn't have to change the way you interpret things. I mean, if you were able to take a photograph of Benton Wesley and everybody's head in this room, it'd be a different picture each time. Because... That's what makes reading so wonderful. You get to create while you're doing it. Although I'm guessing in this crowd there would be a few George Clooney's there in that picture. There might be. <laughs> Just depends on what angle you're seeing him at and how well he's dressed, I suppose. And I bet the set much. design would be really great in a K. Scarpetta film. 
Well, if it, it should be. If it, you didn't write the screenplay, you would probably have to have yes or up and down approval on the set design, I think. Well, good luck getting yes and up and down approval from, from movie studios. Yeah. It's sort of like they buy the car and then it was a Ferrari today and then it's um, you have to plug it in the next time you see it. And you go, what happened here? But it's um, it, it will be an interesting process. It will. I'm open-minded to allowing it to be what it needs to be and knowing that it won't be my entire, it certainly won't be my vision entirely either. Um, a couple of people are asking about another medium, audiobook versions of, uh, audiobook versions of your books. How do you feel about having your works in audio media and how do you pick a reader? Well, I don't usually pick the reader. The publisher does that. And, gen- and but, but, you know, I will say this when I've had fans who have been rather adamant in really liking somebody... If I find out about it, even on Twitter, I pass along the suggestion. And it actually caused them to change one of the readers to somebody else. Mm. So it's, it's always good to, if you have opinions, voice them. Because you never know, it might make a really big difference. I, it's, it's a little weird sometimes because, especially, I, I hear Marino a very distinctive way. And so sometimes if I've listened to a snippet of an audio tape, I go, that doesn't sound like him. Um, he's saying, Yo! And I go, no, he's got a really deep voice. So I don't know. It's, it's a, but people seem to love it. And if they love it, that's what matters. You mentioned Marino, so I have to ask. There are some revelations about the backstory of Marino and Kay in Dust. Anything that you care to share now? Well, this was a little unusual what I did. Because you have Scarpetta, you know, she's not, she's getting over the flu. Her fever has just broken. And Marino wakes her up. And she's she's not had anything to eat in like 24 hours. I mean, I'm really not nice to this person. And so, and she's a little bit weak, and she's extremely tired, and he's going to call her out to this crime scene. And before he gets to the house, she drifts back off to sleep. And she's, you know how it is when you're sort of awake but not awake, and then you have a very vivid dream that's almost more like a flashback. And so she has... That the rain beating on the roof at her house in Cambridge carries her back to a rainy summer day 20 years earlier when she was packing up her life and was surrounded by boxes in her garage with the door wide open listening to the rain and she's getting ready to leave Richmond and not under good circumstances. She's basically been sort of run out of town and she thinks Benton Wesley is dead. And this is a low moment for her. Marino's sitting there with her and they're smoking cigarettes and drinking beer. Mm -hmm. And you get a very much a different sort of peephole into their relationship in their early days together when you watch what goes on between the two of these people. And you realize he's getting ready to kind of follow her because they, they sort of they don't always get along, but they can't get away from each other either. But I think you're going to really enjoy that scene, especially if you're familiar with the series, because I'm going to show you something you never saw before that happened way back then. How carefully do you plot out those kind of reveals? Because we learn more about our character in each novel. We learn in this one, she goes back to Miami to her home on 79th Street and has some very vivid memories. And I'm just wondering if that is something you just flows through you. Do you plot it out? How carefully planned is that kind of revelation of Kay's character? It's it's not planned. Yeah. Um, I... I tr- I try to go through that looking glass and sort of take on her persona so I can write about her. And while I'm doing it, 
it goes where it's going to go. I mean, of course, I'm following the evidence in a logical fashion. I know how cases work. And within, within reason, I do things the way they would be done. And that's sort of the, the, the structure or backbone of a book is what is she going to do next? What would she do next? But there's so much else in terms of where her imagination goes or her emotions go. And there's something that happens in this book that brings back memories of her being a little girl and her father taking her to see the elephants when the circus would come to town. And that becomes a very poignant scene because she's da- she is in Miami. The case has taken her there. Miami's where she's from. And it's, it's, uh, I think it's one of the more moving moments in the whole book because just seeing these elephants crossing the street just creates this tidal wave of memories for her that sort of put her entire life into perspective. And that's how we learn more about who she is because the key to Scarpetta's success isn't just the technology and how she works crimes. It's also the magic of her personality and who is this person and what is it like to be her. I've spoken with many writers who have talked, especially if they have recurring characters, who feel like the readers project upon them the attributes of the characters. And we have a lot of questions that ask those kind of questions. For example, do you cook as much as Kay does and do you like wine as much? Um, I, I don't cook as much as she does anymore because my partner is a really good cook, and oftentimes I'm not allowed in the kitchen. And so, even though I'm the one with cookbooks, and this is a real running joke in the house, and so we do make pizza together and do other things like that, but I do know how to cook. I have done cookbooks, and um, and cooking is... In fact, if you want to make your fans upset, write a, a Scarpetta book and don't have her cook anything in it. I get tons of complaints about that. And so I say to her, I don't care if you're stuck in a hotel room this entire book, you are going to cook. You're going to go to Walmart and buy some cookware and a stovetop, and by God, you're going to make spaghetti or something like she did in Red Mist when they were in quarantine for a while. And so that's, that's really important. I like wine, but she actually has more refined taste than I do. I admit it. I'll throw back and knock back a couple really good gin and tonics, you know. Um, sometimes my taste is really more similar to Marino's. I also like things that are disgustingly bad for you. <laughs> Stuff that Scarpetta, just read my lips, she does not eat cheese spread. (laughs) I do. Um, Sometimes, though, I wonder about you and uh, Lucy. Just because we have a question here about how long you've had your pilot's license, and I've heard you have a pilot's license, and you have helicopter and jets, and you like that kind of flashy part. How long, by the way, have you had a pilot's license? Um, Since 1999. And where is the furthest you've flown and the most exciting trip you had? With helicopters, I mean, when you're going to take a long trip, you have to be reminded it's slow, because compared to a plane, it's very slow. So usually a a long helicopter trip for me would be a two-day trip where you fly, like, from Boston to Miami. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, you know, a good six hours a day in the cockpit, which is pretty tiring to say the least so I've done a lot of trips like that and and, but that is probably the most fun is flying along the shoreline especially if you go all the way to Key West and you're seeing the reflection of your helicopter in that greenish blue beautiful shallow water and you can see sea turtles and um, stingrays and all that from 500 feet above and that's really quite beautiful Mm -hmm. so and you know, I learned to fly because I wanted Lucy to be a, a helicopter pilot. Back in those days, and this was probably around 1994, you, you know, you just didn't hear about women flying helicopters. And I said, she should. 
and I'd been flown in them, so I was very interested in them, so I started taking lessons so I could write about her doing it. And as I say, the characters also create me, because then I became a helicopter pilot. Um, she drives outrageously fast, powerful cars. Um, she, unlike me, she has a whole garage full of these monsters. But, you know, so I had to learn. I know it's tough life, somebody has to do it, so I had to learn to drive Ferraris. <laughs> um, and then it was the motorcycle, so, and scuba diving, all these things, and they're much better at all of it than I am, but I know enough to be able to tell the story. 94, isn't that about when The Body Farm came out? Yes. And Lucy became, you right. made Lucy a gay character. I'm, just knowing what we know about popular crime fiction and popular culture back in the 90s, mid-90s, just trying to imagine what that meeting went like with your editor or your publisher when you were saying, I'm going to make a gay character. I, I didn't make her that. She was that. And I, then I had to tell the truth about it. Literally, I was writing a scene in Scarpetta. I don't make these people anything. And I once had an editor say that in the book where we thought Benton died, but he didn't really, they said, you need to go back. And the last time they're together, they need to have sex. I said, okay, I'll be right back. Let me ask. I asked them, they said, Scarpetta would not answer me, which meant a big fat no. And I said, they don't want to have sex. I don't know why you'd have to ask them that question, but I can't change that scene. And so, in fact, they usually don't even let me watch, which is too bad, because I'm sure it's quite good. But they let me know just enough to sort of tell you what happened. And the, the room is usually, the door is locked. I mean, it's, it's, you'd be surprised how many places I'm kept out of in my own mind, as twisted as it is. But in the scene about Lucy, Scarpetta's in her living room in Richmond, and she walks in, and I haven't seen Lucy in a number of years, and I'm literally watching this right before my eyes in my head. And I, I watched her body language, and I said, oh my God, she's gay. And then I thought back to when she was 10 and always taking computers apart and what a brat and playing with guns and driving pickup trucks. And I said, well, what big surprise is that? So I called my publisher and I said, I think you should know this. You know, Lucy is gay. And she says, well, why are you doing this? I said, I'm not doing it. She did it. Or God did it. And so... I said, I don't lie about my characters. I, I had somebody in publishing wasn't happy about the Newtown thing in this book. Said, you should make it up as a different place. I said, I know this will come as a real shock, but there aren't too many um, schools with first graders where this exact same thing has happened. And so changing the name is not going to mean anything to anybody. They're going to know what I'm talking about. And I'm not going to lie about it. This happened. And you know something? If my book helps people remember it 100 years from now, then they should. I, again, I don't go into inappropriate detail. I'm very cautious what I do. But I do tell the truth, even though I write fiction. Lucy also is, a, is an interesting counter to Kay. When they're working together, Kay Scarpetta is procedural, you know, kind of clinical. She has a lot of feelings, but she manages them, whereas Lucy's much more apt to sort of yell out, you know, what she thinks is the answer. And I'm interested in the interplay between those two. And since you have them both close at hand, I just wondered if you could tell us, you know, about how that works for them. Well, we've gotten to a stage in the series where Scarpetta very openly does not want to know some of the things that Lucy does, because we all know that Lucy... And I have said this before, to her, some laws are simply no different than obstructions when you're flying. They're just things you go around. Mm. And she doesn't see the point in them. And so therefore, she's a big believer in her own situational ethics. Whereas Scarpetta, who also has a law degree, <clears throat> she has quite a different pr perspective on obeying the law. 
so she does not believe it's a good thing to hack into computer systems unless you work for our government. Um, <clears throat> she doesn't think it's a good thing to spy and to do all the things. In fact, Lucy may just go back and work for the government. Maybe that's what I should do <laughs> in the next book. But so there is, all joking aside, there is a certain amount of tension because Scarpetta has come around to the point of view that Lucy's wired a little differently, certainly than from what she is. It's not something she's always comfortable with, but it is what it is. And she lives with that. They're very different people that way. And that's, I mean, that's also why Lucy is really fun because she, she doesn't understand fear the same way other people do. She, and she will get a job done. One thing that you're going to like in Dust, I think, is that you actually see Lucy working a crime scene with her aunt. We haven't seen that in well over probably a decade, maybe 15 years. Um, Lucy used to be FBI and ATF. She got fired by both, big surprise. Um, but she knows what she's doing, and she's quite an investigator, and we actually see her at a crime scene and notice what she's observing in her, her spin on things, and I think it's a, it's a lot of fun. Wearing what I was kind of imagining was a really smashing jumpsuit, like a flight suit, isn't she wearing she something was, like Yeah, that? because she'd, she'd just been flying, and she has on her flight suit when she shows up at the, my, my characters, because I never let them eat or sleep, they tend to wear the same outfits from the beginning to the end, which means that the, whoever does wardrobe in the movie may have a very small job on their hands. <laughs> uh, there's a question from the audience about what you do with your characters. Why can't Kay be happy? I'm rooting for her to be happy after all her trials and tears. We just always catch her at a bad time. <laughs> I mean, what do you people expect? The phone rings and wakes you up. You've been sick. You've just been at a, a mass fatality. And then you're dragged out in the middle of the night to a crime scene. And, I mean, I could try to have a little rock and roll playing on the radio and see if it peps her up or something. But she usually has some pretty dark and uh, foreboding thoughts on her mind. She's very intense. Um, if you could only be around her when she's not working a case, she is a barrel of laughs. But nobody wants to publish a book when she's not working a case. That's the, in my contract. If she's not working a case, we do not have a deal. Or cooking. You have to throw that in there, too. But she, she's not as, um, she, she's really not an unhappy person. She's just very intense, and we catch her when she's in the middle of an absolute life-and-death emergency. But we do get these hints of how she gets triggered, you know, her past, these, these little, little tidbits, little breadcrumbs about her past. And her inner discipline kind of gets confronted when things frighten her, right? We, we, we're, where she is unnerved. We have a question here from the audience about, your past few Scarpetta novels have taken her to a deeper, dark place in terms of self-introspection and mm -hmm. self-doubt. Seems to be impacting her relationship with Benton. Your thoughts on this evolution? No, she and Benton are doing fine. Don't you worry <laughs> for one minute about that. And I know because I can't get in their bedroom most of the time. <laughs> so even if I just want to dust and pick up a few things in there, I can't get through the door. So, no, she. I think that this is... I think there's a several things going on. First of all, she might not be getting older, but I am. And I think as life moves on, you become more reflective. We think more about life and death and who we are and who we were and who we're going to be. And she is, so she is much more reflective. And some of that is my allowing her to be so because, for example, in Dust, she, she, there's a, in the very beginning, she's very reflective about 
life and death and spirituality and what is afterlife and what does it all mean? And frankly, these are the kinds of questions a lot of us would like to ask her. I know I'm asked this frequently. You know, you've seen so much death. What do you think about the afterlife? Do you believe in it? I said, no, I believe it's a continuum. I think that we, I think that there is no beginning or end to the energy and the spirit that is us. And the more dead bodies I've seen, the more struck I've been by how I can look at a photograph of someone who was alive two hours earlier and it still looks like them, but that energy is so completely gone, it's like a burned out light bulb. Where did it go? And I don't think it disappears. And so I actually feel that I have a much stronger sense of the dead not really being gone. We just don't know where they are or how we can relate to them. Um, the, the way, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not, I don't think as much metaphorically like streets paved in gold and things like that, but I have very strong spiritual sense of who people are and what they are. And it, some of that even happened when I was working on the Jack the Ripper book, when it became so vivid, I was so vividly aware that this evil spirit is not really gone. He still influences people, and sometimes you almost could feel the presence of something very dark when I was working on that book and going through things that he had held in his hand and letters that he had written. So I have a very big respect respect for the eternity yeah. of who and what we are. And she does too. There are a couple of questions here about uh, the Jack the Ripper book. First, how did you get interested in Jack the Ripper? I got kidnapped, sort of. I had no, never had any thought of writing about Jack the Ripper. In fact, I'd never even read anything about Jack the Ripper. And then in the spring of 2001, I was in London and somebody introduced me to a Scotland Yard investigator who this was one of his specialties was studying this case and he started talking about it with me and then he and I started asking him questions and then he took me on a retrospective visit of where the crime scenes had been and he started talking about the suspects and I said suspects based on what what evidence he said based on absolutely nothing they're just theories that people have come up with particularly in the last 30 or 40 years and I said, well, is there any evidence in this case? That was the fatal question I should never have asked. He says, well, yeah. I mean, he wrote letters to the, the, the newspapers and the police. And there's still several hundreds of Jack the Ripper letters in the National Archives in a vault. And I said, letters? Well, there's a lot of evidence you can get from letters. And I don't mean just handwriting analysis. I'm talking about possible DNA or forensic paper analysis or the type of medium used, you know, ink or, or pencil or who knows what. I'd like to, the, the language. I would like to see these. So I started, I started getting into it, and there was no turning back because very early on, um, I thought that I was, was on the trail of the person who had done it. And I, and I am actually working on the revision, finishing the revision of that book now, some you know, 11 years later, and I'm more convinced than, than ever that Walter Sickert, the artist, was in fact Jack the Ripper. There may not have been evidence, but there's a pretty vehement and rather angry, it seems, Jack the Ripper uh, theory community out there because you got a lot of flack from that community. I most certainly have, and I, and I will again. And I will, and I will offend people mightily. If they want to be offended, then I intend to make it worse this time <laughs> because I am simply, you know what, I'm not, I'm not spinning a theory. I am showing you a case that is based on extremely precise and detailed investigation and using some of the best scientists um, to do this work. I'm not the one who did the analysis. I'm not the world's foremost paper expert that says that five, um, Jack, five letters 
with a certain watermark that could only have come from 24 sheets of paper. Three were, were Ripper letters. I mean, three were Walter Sickert letters, and two of them were Ripper letters. So you have five sheets of paper from a batch of 24. That's, that's just one example. That's quite a coincidence. And then you add the pathology that the stationary Sickert wrote on was his mother's that he stole from her house. He was smart enough not to cut off the address off the top of it. I'll give him credit for that. So before he wrote these murder letters, these uh, hateful confessionals. So it, you know, people will read this and make up their own minds. I think that you can't ever literally uh, ironclad place him at a crime scene. You know, we can't, you know, it's too, too much time has passed, and they did not save evidence back then like we do today. Mm -hmm. the, the clothing of the victims was just thrown into the alleyway of the dead house. They didn't know you could tell anything from it. Um, oh, my God, if only we had that now. So those attacks became rather personal, and it, their people are so curious about your personal life, maybe because readers think that they know who Kay Scarpetta is, so they must know who you are. I grew up with brothers. I'm used to attacks being personal. <laughs> if, I, if they couldn't beat you at ping pong, they call me pig face. I mean, I'm used to this. Oh. <laughs> I grew up with it. You know, you know how brothers are. Yeah. So I have seven of them. Right. So <laughs> if you if you you know if you if it wasn't fair and square, then it gets personal. And they call you names. But there is an awful lot of digging. I mean, people are curious. And uh, in the past couple of years, you know, uh, with the internet and everything, and you know, other public things that have gone on with you, there's a lot been on display. How does that feel for you? People uh, have this picture of you with this lavish lifestyle with many homes and private jets. Well, I really don't own any private jets. I do fly in them, so maybe that's the same thing. Um, I, I, listen, I just try to tell the truth. And I, I mean, anybody who looks at me doesn't think the word thrifty doesn't come to mind. I have <laughs> never been known for being thrifty except when I was really poor, and then that was of necessity. And I've never pretended to be thrifty, the, but I also i am not like crazy foolish with money, mm -hmm. despite what some people might think and some things that have been in the news. And most importantly... I do a lot with my money that's not about me, and it may not be something that anybody even knows about, but I try to live a responsible life that if I'm going to drive a really expensive car, then I'm also going to put some kids through college or help people who have needs or help animals in distress or do a lot of things to make the world a better place than it, than it might be otherwise. It might not be something that you know about, but are things I've done. I've given away a lot of money over the years. And so therefore, I feel okay if I buy a nice pair of shoes or now and then drive a Lucy car. <laughs> and I really have to do that for the research. <laughs> but in this book, you have a, a, a very shady financier who lives a very opulent life. And there's a lot of criticism for him in the book. You know, there are people who say things like, well, he could afford it or, you know, she could afford a $100 million suit. There's not a lot of sympathy for people with a lot of money. I, I have a, listen, I don't have problems with people who have a lot of money. I have problems with people who are greedy. I'm sorry, I hate greed. I, I, I do not lie about it. I cannot stand to see it. There's a reason it was a deadly sin. In fact, I don't mind gluttony, but greed bothers me. <laughs> because people who are all about money and don't care about anybody, anybody else, and they can drive right past someone who's hungry and poor and it doesn't bother them. Um, and so greed is really what Scarpetta is on the warpath after in this book. And yes, greed re this results in murders and in cases and 
Um, I show you all the ugly spoils, but when she finally gets to this one crime scene towards the end of this incredibly rich, rich person who's absolutely evil, and it, it, you're going to love what she does, let me put it this way. And he got what he deserved. I did not care what happened to that guy. And she works the crime scene with Benton, which yeah. is kind of an And Lucy, that's where yeah. Lucy is. And she goes all through this person's house because she's looking for a very peculiar weapon based on the injuries that she saw. And um, no, I'm not nice to this guy. Mm-mm. Well, another thing that people are curious about is your home life or your personal life, your wife, you're married um, to a woman. Um, and I just wonder if as a very visible, successful lesbian, do you get called in for a lot of causes? I mean, did you get hit up for, you know, protecting DOMA or, or uh, gay marriage? Do, do those things come to your doorstep? We, we get requests, and, and I call us partners because we are absolutely equal mm. um, and have a, a, a absolutely the best wonderful relationship and the best friendship you could ever imagine. So I'm, I'm so lucky to, to have Stacy. Um, I... The, the way I feel about it is I'm, I'm very open and honest about it. It's not something that I parade around as a huge cause because, to me, what I try to just live a normal life so that it's an example to people that why do we make such a big deal out of all this? Yes, I'm going to be helpful, you know, financially supporting some things, and but I, to me, we are so much more alike than we're different as human beings, and it. it it frustrates me when one part of somebody's life becomes sort of represents the whole because that's just not really the case um, unless you want it to be. So I feel like if you lived next door to us, you would just you wouldn't even notice this about us anymore. We're just people. Mm. How about that fixation, though, that people want to understand that part of your life? I mean, does that ever get too close to you? Do you ever feel oppressed by that? I try not to go into those negative airspaces about feeling oppressed or saying, you know, gee, I hate that I have no privacy anymore and fame is terrible because the, the fact is most of my life is nothing but a lot of privilege. Mm -hmm. And with it comes some discomfort sometimes. It's a little frustrating when you do you know, interviews, particularly print interviews, and it seems like 50% of the questions about, about your being gay and it's like, it, fine, I'm happy to talk about this some, but wouldn't you like to know something else? Because I'm a lot of things, mm -hmm. and I've lived a lot of things, but we are still at a stage in our society where this is more of an oddity than a normal, a, a normal thing, unfortunately, because you wouldn't be asked about it so much if people really thought it was that normal. So, and that saddens me. It's the same thing when people talk about especially in the early days when I was called, you know, a successful female crime writer. And I said, but you don't talk about a successful male crime writer. Why do we have to categorize? Why can't we just talk about us as being human beings? But we're farther along than we used to be, and that's the good news. And, and that's, I think, very hopeful. I, I'm, I'm hoping that in another 10 or 20 years we're going to be even so much farther than we are today, that maybe we don't have to think in terms of people being a certain thing, black, white, gay, straight, um, whatever. In this book, 
there is this undercurrent of mistrust for the media, for Channel 5, especially <laughs> WCBB in, in Boston, but also for the internet and how information and misinformation is spread around. And I wonder how real that is for you as somebody who has been the target of, you know, internet campaigns or hatred. Oh, sure. It's, it's, it's very common. I think it's common for everybody. You know, I grew up in a town of 200 people. And what's so wonderful about that is I will never be as famous as I was back then because everybody knew my grades and whether I picked their daffodils when I went through their yard, which I did. <laughs> and my mother got called and then I was spoken about it after church or I got dragged to the mayor's office. Um, that I kid you not, several times I got dragged to the mayor's office by my mother because I was a naughty pants and I did things and I had to apologize. Such as, you know, taking popcorn out of the machine because I figured out a really great technique to do it. If you got a stick and you open the little thing and pull out a bag, scrape, scrape, and I thought mother would be so happy that I got free popcorn. Well, that was not a good experience for me. <laughs> and I learned thou shalt not steal at a very young age. So, but what I'm trying to say is whether you have... 15 people who follow you on Facebook or half a million, your world is as big as your world is. And so you don't have to be famous to be really affected by ugly things people put on the internet. It could be a bad review for your restaurant and you know your competition put somebody up to it. Or it could be bullying. We see plenty of that. So I just really try not to go into that corner of woe is me, I have so many more problems than other people. Mine might be on a bigger scale per capita in terms of numbers of people that, that throw hate bombs, but it feels what it feels like to everybody. Mm -hmm. I don't think it feels any different for me than it does for anybody sitting here. It, just, it never feels good. Well, if Wikipedia is correct, which I read on the internet, of course, that you were raised in a conservative Christian household. I was. So uh, that's why the popcorn thing was a really bad move. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about coming out as gay? That would not be, that was, would be frowned upon in my town as well. <laughs> I'm sure they have me on a wanted poster in the post office there. Um, I'm, I have not been invited to do a book signing. So, you know, I, that's, but yeah, that's, I grew up being everything that I was taught was wrong. Hmm. My, the books that I write. This is not something a nice little Presbyterian schoolgirl should be writing. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I, I was brought up that the best thing that could happen to me is to get married and have children and meet some nice man who would support me and, and not do anything in life. I didn't need to do anything. And from the get-go, I never fit in that mold. I mean, I was out playing baseball with the boys, and then I was playing tennis tournaments, and I was never somebody I was always trying to do, be somebody. I wanted to have a life that made me feel like I was here for a reason. I wonder what that feels for you now. You know, you've written, people have read a hundred million of your books. You are a model for so many. And, and you've been courageous enough to talk about dealing with bipolar disorder. So again, something that people must hang on you. Tell us about that experience for you. How do you manage that? Well, I will say just literally, I don't want to get into diagnoses and all this because, but it's, look, I definitely have issues with moods. Um, and, and so I do understand that, and, it's, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually glad. I mean, almost any hardship that I've had in my life, if you asked me if I would get rid of it if I could, I would say no, mm -hmm. because it's made me who I am. And I actually think with as many good things as I've had happen, if I, I didn't have a certain fabric that was very weather-beaten and therefore empathetic, I'd probably be a real jerk. 
And I might be, but you know, I have too many other things going on to have time or the interest in being a jerk. And I, I know what it is to be sad and to feel like a failure and to not have you know, a family structure that really works or to, to be depressed and not know why or to have an eating disorder like I did when I was a teenager. Um, I, I, I know enough of the darker side of life to, to not let the good things that have happened to me change me into somebody I shouldn't be. And one of the reasons I think that Scarpetta is such a crusader is that I feel that in all of my books, they need to do more than just entertain you. I want them to make a difference somehow. In the, and maybe somebody would think they make no difference at all, but I, I feel that I'm adding, uh, I don't want to use the more morality as a word because it's so misused, but there's a substance that you get from spending time with Scarpetta that goes beyond your, your just being entertained by her. I think she makes the world a better place. Mm. Well, you... I had to scratch that question off my list, how experiencing so many murders has made you feel about death, because you answered that. But I'm wondering about life. Um, I hear a lot of life force come through you. But there's a scene in the book, Kay's in the Pit. And I know the title of the book is Dust, and you who are going to read it are going to find out what that dust is. But there's this other mention of dust that I just thought you wrote about beautifully, if you don't mind my reading it. People fail, everything fails. The magic we're born believing in and working for and then doubting and finally fearing eventually rusts, rots, fades, breaks down, withers, dies, and turns to dust. And for me, the response is always the same. That is really a profound thought. And I wonder if you got that from her. <laughs> I mean, where does this come to you from? How do you, how do you consider this? I think it goes, again, to, and we, we get it from each other, that my friend and I, even though she never goes to anything that I do, <laughs> and she makes me do. Do you think we could book her for the next one? You know, I try, but she doesn't answer my emails. <laughs> um, she does have an email account, but I really don't send stuff to her. I just didn't want someone else to have it. So, because um, that would have really freaked me out, be getting emails from Scarpetta. And... So, anyway, she, th th what she's really talking about there, and what I'm talking about, is the material world does turn to dust. That's why if you don't have the right values, you're in big trouble. I mean, we all care about nice things and the way we look and, and our ambitions and accomplishing something, but I think Scarpetta digs in as deep as you can go to say, what, does, what really matters? And for her, what really matters is, is the life in front of her. And this goes back to very early experiences with me, where, where I had one person who, when I was at my worst point, you know, when I was, had just come out of a hospital because I was starving myself to death and I couldn't play tennis anymore because I was too weak and I dropped out of college and I was such a failure that I really just hoped I would die because I thought, there's no reason for me to be here, I'm just useless and miserable, and I'm not good at anything. And then one day, the phone rings, and it's Mrs. Billy Graham, who was the biggest celebrity. She was like the first lady. She was so famous, um, and she lived in our town. Mm -hmm. And she says, you know, I was going to go to Pizza Hut, wondered if you'd like to come along. And I thought, why would she care about me, this lady? She lived up the road, but I was just a, a neighbor who, in my brother's hand-me-downs. I mean, why would she bother with me? And she bothered with me because someone had told her that I was in trouble. And she picked me up, and she put this big, beautiful leather journal in my lap. And she says, I've heard rumors that you're quite a writer. She said, I'd like you to write. I want you to start writing, and I want to read what you write. 
and she took me to lunch and she changed my life. And so if so what I say, and this is what Scarpetta does, whether the person is dead or alive, you pay attention to that person in front of you, and you give it all you've got. Because if you change even one life on this planet, you've changed the world. You've left it better than you found it. And that's what she means about dust, is that it's great to have a car and to be beautiful, but never forget what really matters. It's us giving to each other and, and having it become a circle. Well, the final question, obviously, to go from that, you know, woman, young woman who walked out of the hospital to where you are now, takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of will, it takes a lot of something. And I wonder, if you hadn't met that woman, Kay Scarpetta, do you think you'd be here? Would I still be alive or be here? Would you be, would you be the person that you are today? No. She's made me a better person. Because I have to think about things that, that are really good and decent and honorable when I work with her. She, I mean, the, the, here's the best thing about Scarpetta. She's not perfect, and if she were, we would not want to eat at her house and go have a few drinks with her. She's fun, trust me. And she's not perfect. And she would tell you she's not perfect. But the one thing that Scarpetta will not ever do is abuse power. And that is the root of all evil is when you take the ultimate uh, abuse of power is to make something suffer and die because you can. And she sees it every day in her work. So even if it's the way she treats her administrator or the, or the person who helps her in the yard or a dog that's been abandoned, she will never abuse the power that she has at that moment. And if all of us would be this way, if the world would be this way, we wouldn't have wars. We wouldn't have murders. I mean... It's not going to happen, but it should be a goal we at least as we aspire to as best we can. Well, before we close tonight, I want to thank some of the other people who made this evening possible. The executive producer and live stage presentation director of Writers on a New England Stage, Patricia Lynch. The producer and communications director, Margaret Talcott. And also New Hampshire, Vice Re New Hampshire Public Radio president, Betsy Gardella. NHPR's broadcast producer tonight, Taylor Quimby. NHPR's digital producer, Sarah Plord. Music Hall production manager, Jana Morris. Live sound and recording engineer, Noah Lefebvre. And also musical director and band, Bob Lord and Dreadnought. And please join me in thanking Thank you. Patricia Thank you. Cornwell for an amazing evening. Thank you.